straight talk about the issues you care about the most. It's LaVise Dinkleville, Empowerment for the Culture. Now, your hosts, Dr. Will LaVise and Dr. Eric Claville. Hey, I'm Will LaVise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuning into LaVise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective, because it's like that, and that's the way it is. So let's get right to this show, which is a sad topic and a very crucial and concerning topic, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, The not guilty on all charges verdict in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the fatally shooting two men and injuring a third during civil unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin was in 2020, back when he was 17 years old then. And that trial that just concluded generated a lot of anger, some glee, and also a lot of fear. You know, people are wondering if the trial gives a uh, green light to vigilantism. There's also a lot of misinformation and manipulation that's going on around the political sphere on depending on which side of this issue that you're on. So just to give a little background on what the charges were, Rittenhouse is now 18. Like I said back then, he was 17. Uh, he was not charged with murder. He faced charges of first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree intentional homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide during a protest following the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And Rittenhouse was also charged with reckless endangerment of two additional men. So, Eric, you being the attorney, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of the law. There's a lot of misinformation. Let's try to help to to clear it up by, you know, establishing some things and 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 what's going on here to help people understand what this case, what it all means. Yeah. So, Will, I mean, to your point, uh, this is one of those jury verdicts that um, is reminiscent, uh, I believe, of what mm-hmm. we saw. Uh, pre-civil rights era legislation uh, where we had nearly all white juries uh, basically let white men off the hook uh, for uh, these types of actions. Uh, now, of course, you know, you know, we do have the justice system and we have to trust our system that it works because it's a process. Of course, we have the appellate process with the appeal and so forth, but the judicial process actually works when you are well prepared for it. I will say, yeah. uh, just from observing in the, the, the trial itself, I thought that uh, it, the prosecution was not as best prepared compared to the Minnesota prosecution. Uh, I thought that this case uh, was one where it would set a precedent for or against these types of actions. Uh, where we look at individuals taking the law in their own hands, being is basically vigilanteism uh, versus protectionism. You know, we see that through mm-hmm. history. We've seen white males throughout throughout our history taking upon themselves to be protectors right. of their country, protectors of their border, protectors of um, their communities and th- things of that nature. Yeah, that was that's a justification for the lynch mobs and the and the like. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, where they were both accusers, 
judge, jury, and executors all in one uh, action. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I kind of want us to take a look at this particular verdict and the situation, the time, place, and circumstance in its totality, right? So as you mentioned, historically, that was a justification for lynch mobs. That was a justification for the Klan. That was justification for um, uh, individuals that were that are going to the border. And just right. as a side note, I don't know where people get time in their day to actually go, you know, head the border to assist federal officers in doing right. their job. Right. You know, you know. But but again, I, I digress. Uh, so, but but with that, this case I believe is is has set a precedent that it is okay to take the law in your own hands and um, become a protector of of your your community. Now, well, let's, let's look, well let's let's parse that out a little bit though, because okay, in Rittenhouse, what he said was first of all he was asked to go there by his employer. He did work in the city. He lived in nearby Illinois. He worked there. Saxby's employer because of the unrest that happened um, to help protect the property. So he went there. That was his defense that he said he was going there to protect property. Uh, it's also was identified that he did, in fact, technically, legally had the weapon. And these uh, gentlemen that he encountered, you know, my. Uh, Condolences go out to the family anytime lives are lost. Absolutely. And I think that we need to remember that lives were lost in this. But he said that, again, he had a right to be there, was a defense. He had a right to have the firearm. He was protecting property. How is that the same as you going to a protest and to encounter protesters and taking on protesters? How can, how can you can you clear that up for people? Because because that's a lot of what's being said, but that's but that's not how it played out in the courtroom. Right. So, well, it's one thing to stand in front of your property and protect mm -hmm. it, and another thing to run through the streets right. with AR-15 waving at officers and things of that nature. Which, you know, you think about it, you have a you have a kid with an AR-15 rifle on the right. Rifle. He's walking the streets and he's waving at officers and they're waving back at him. All right, so think about that. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, think, I about, think that. about that, right? So now keep in mind, this is a white young man. Could a black young man walk down the street with an AR 15 rifle and wave at the officers without and, and get a wave back? Or would he get a wave of bullets back? Right? Well, we, we know the answer to that, absolutely. Well, do we? Do we know the answer to it? I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we think we know the answer to it. We're pretty sure we know the answer to it, but I think it has to be articulated. And I think most people will say no. They will not get a wave back. They'll get a wave of bullets back. Right. And so, so when you look at the advantage that he had, just being able to walk down the street, he's walking and running down the street. He's not standing in front of a piece of property of his employer. Yeah, but but I think, but again, being Adhering to the law, the the common belief out there is that he went out there with a gun, crossed straight line, straight, uh, state lines to confront the protesters, and he's essentially going out there and walking around, and then he got into a confrontation with the protesters. But is that in fact how it went down? 
is that I'm saying is that that's not exactly how it did go down. So I think that's that's I think really to understand this and to me and to really get to the to the root issues of what this is really raising is that we got to have a real clear understanding of what happened. And and again, and how it played out in court, he did legally have the gun. The gun, in fact, was already there in the state. Uh, His friend uh, had the gun. And there's some issue there where his friend is now uh, potentially going to be prosecuted uh, for those because of illegalities of holding on to the gun gun until Kyle became 18 and all of this. His his friend is going to catch a little little heat over this, right? But people are believing that he came across the lines with a gun. He didn't come across the lines with a gun. He wasn't going to the protest to go confront protesters in that sense. And so to me, and, and why I'm saying this is because I look at this from a journalistic point of view, having covered trials and knowing that what people, what that jury is presented with oftentimes and how the limitations of what they have to make a decision on is a lot different than what we're getting out here oftentimes in the public sphere. And there's a lot of this misinformation is that fuels it. And then again, as a, from a journalism standpoint, I think of it as a journalist, our role should be to clearly help people understand what in fact did happen. And I think it's important to understand that the uh, that the that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't just go across the state lines with a you know with an M16 and confront and that and that also played into how the jury had to uh, decide his case. Well, you're, you're exactly right. It's how do you characterize it? But I think that the defense did a great job, you know, in painting their client as the victim. Mm-hmm. Okay. They painted him as the victim. They painted him as a person engaged in self-defense. Even though the video clearly showed it was it was instigation that was taking place uh, throughout the going back and forth or in the street and things of that nature. Like I said, if you're, if you're there to defend property, you stand in front of your property and defend it. Mm-hmm. You're, not standing, you're not going through the street, you know, walking around and, and the like. And you're not also instigating uh, against others that are there. You're, you're doing... When you, just like any officers or guards or trained professionals, military, you're trained not to take the first shot. You're trained to de-escalate or the situation. When you pull that trigger, that's the last, I mean, you had no other option, basically, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that you had to choose. So, But to your point, you know, of course, the prosecution said that they're disappointed. As a matter of fact, looking at the latest CNN article, uh, they said the jury represented the community in the, in the trial, which it was a nearly all-white <laughs> juror, mm-hmm. uh, jury pool. Uh, one person looked as if they were a person, well, was a person of color, but there was no designation who that person was. Um, also, you had seven women and five men uh, in that jury. Of course, two were dismissed, one because of a racial joke uh, with the sheriff about Jacob Blake. Uh, mm-hmm. So they showed he was could have been prejudicial. Uh, and then the other because of her pregnancy, uh, because of medical reasons. But what the prosecution said is said that it sends the unacceptable message that armed civilians can show up in any town, incite violence, and turn the turn, and then use the danger they created mm-hmm. to justify shooting people in the street. So, you know, that's really how I think that the public is going to take this. And I think what has happened, Will. 
I believe that this verdict has now emboldened okay. these types of actions to happen in the future. I mean, keep in mind, here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Charlottesville was not that long ago. Right. right. Here in the Commonwealth of Virginia and in Michigan, the armed militia that had literally planned to kidnap the governor of the state of Michigan and the Commonwealth of Virginia was not that long ago. Right. right, We're talking less than a year. All right. Keep in mind, even though it's been some decades, the actions of the terrible, terrible, terrible actions of Timothy McVeigh was not that long ago. Keep in mind that even though it was more a few more decades ago, the shooting at the clock tower at the University of Texas was not that long ago. These are individuals that believe these extremist ideas that we need to take our country back. We need to take action when we feel that there are others who are going to destroy it or impede upon our freedoms. So again, that's kind of what I foresee. I foresee right. uh, a, a bolster. Uh, I foresee uh, individuals utilizing this as justification. I see more and more and more people going to the borders to protect the borders where they believe that the border patrol is not doing their job, right? Again, taking law in their own hand. Well, I, I agree with you about there's a certain element that may feel emboldened by what is going on. But is that justified? that they would feel emboldened. It is what Kyle Rittenhouse did aligned with Timothy McVeigh. Again, there are, in the trial, if people really paid attention to the trial and how the defense did a much better job of addressing the facts and showing how this is, in their eyes, was a self-defense case and not a vigilante case, I think that that's something that's important for people to understand. So look, look, I pulled up this article from the Business Insider. They're talking about the various myths in this case. And so one of the things is that it's unclear. A lot of people have been saying, okay, this case is showing that if you're white and you are protesting on behalf of injustice towards black people, this is a sign to you that, you know, that's not something that you want to do. We're going to gun you down in the streets. But the fact of the matter is, again, condolences to the family and people's lives that were lost. It's not clear what the motives were of the individuals that Rittenhouse confronted. So according to Business Insider, they say, they say uh, um, Gage, I believe is Gage uh, Gross Crutes. I'm sorry if I messed up the name. He was a 27-year-old EMT. He survived the shooting, and he was there as a medic to perform uh, assistance to anyone who needed it during a protest, right? So we got, at least he was there for those reasons. Then we look to the gentleman who were, who were, whose lives were lost. Uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, was less clear that night. Rosenbaum was seen in a number of videos, not protesting, but causing destruction, setting fires, tipping over a porta potty, wielding a chain, and at one point even shouting the N-word. Rittenhouse's defense attorney characterized Rosenbaum as a rioter. And even the lead prosecutor said in his closing statement, he would have prosecuted Rosenbaum for arson had he not been fatally shot. Then Rosenbaum's fiance told the Washington Post uh, in 2020 
that he wasn't there as a rioter or looter. Just hours before the protest, Rosenbaum had been released from the hospital following psychiatric care for a suicide attempt. So again, condolences to the family. That is actually obviously a, a, a person who was in pain and trouble. But people are operating on the misnomer that these men who lost their lives were there supporting the cause of the peaceful protesters who were out there. And, and my point is, I think that if we don't get the facts right and understand what truly is going on here, then the fears and the emboldenedness of what you just spoke about is a lot more likely to happen. You know, this, this is not necessarily a case of a young man who took a gun across state lines to confront protesters. And then when he, he brought his gun to the fight, he ended up killing people. So it's like, well, why did you go there? I think you're absolutely right that in this case, and this is what has me upset about it, is what you said earlier, that if this was an African-American or Latino man who had done the same exact thing, he would, the system would not have operated fairly and looked at the facts and, and parsed it out and really got into the details. The likelihood is that it would have been a, much more assumed that he was just a rabble rouser that went there and started trouble and so forth and confronted people. Imagine if a black person had gone to the January 6th insurrection, right? They called that a protest. So he could have gone there armed to protect, you know, the, the, the property in around the D.C. area across the street or whatever and confronted protesters and then ended up killing somebody. Absolutely. What would the likelihood of him being viewed as a patriot who came and who was acting in, in, within his legal rights, what's the likelihood of him being viewed that way? We know that would not have been the case. So for me, for Kyle Rittenhouse, the system actually did absolutely work for him. And that's the problem, that when it comes to black and brown people versus white people, the same system does not look at us as human beings, as a 17-year-old, you know, he's going to be 18. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. The system doesn't do that. Yeah, well, look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you're right. The system did work for him. Uh, we all know, even those that uh, may not say it, and we know that there, you know, there is trepidation across the board when talking about these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but we know that if this was a non-white individual, it would be a very, very, very different scenario um, because of the reason why for the unrest. <laughs> The shooting of Jacob Blake and, and all the things that transpired before that in, in, in the report. But one thing I think you're right, Bill, you got to get the facts straight. And the prosecution, according to the CNN article, actually was facing an uphill battle. But we know that based on the law. As a matter of fact, I just want to quote this, uh, this, this, this sentence here. So in the state of Wisconsin, it requires the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest level, the mm -hmm. highest level. All right, beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, uh, let's see, that, yeah, the defendant did not act, which is Rittenhouse, in self-defense. Now, there are limits to self-defense claims, right, but the, right. defend, the defendant, Rittenhouse, may intentionally use force, which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm, only if the defendant reasonably believed that the force used was necessary 
to prevent imminent death or great right. bodily harm to himself. So when you talk about the, uh, the what was taking place, uh, there was a drone video that was showing Rittenhouse shooting Rosenbaum that was really at the heart of the defense, according right. to Zark, which requested this trial in the case. So basically, you know, they got him on the stand. He, he, they showed him very emotional, which, you know, there's been some uh, critique of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, there have been. You know, so <laughs> and you can take a look at the critique uh, from various sources. But he was on, I mean, basically, the defense, his attorneys prepared him very well. I'm just going to say that. And basically, he said, listen, I didn't do anything wrong. I defended myself. Defended myself. So he was charged with five felonies. And of course, the misdemeanors, of course, they were thrown out by the judge, which I, I didn't really understand why the judge dismissed those misdemeanor weapons possession charges and non-criminal cur- curfew violations before prior to the deliberations. Right. Uh, but I thought they also should have been added, you know, uh, prior to them being requested before that. So with that, with that being the case, you know, with that with that burden that the prosecution had, right? That was a very high burden. Right? Very high, very high. They could have actually looked at this case and started to charge. Of course, you want to charge with every crime, right? You know, that's what you taught first year criminal law law school, charge with the highest crime and then what's called the lesser and included offenses, right? Lesser included. In the event that the uh, you were not able to meet the, the level of evidence that it takes to meet every single element right. of the highest crime, then it may meet those lesser and included. So crimes, shoot, right? for, shoot for the sun. If you make it to the move, you still got to win, right? You still got to win, <laughs> right? So again, I thought that some of those charges could have been added in prior to, but you know, with that, but it is what it is. They tried to add it in, but of course the judge dismissed those. In addition to that, I also uh, saw in this case where there wasn't a lot of, and, and I think this is part of uh, some, of the, some of the comments that the judge made, there wasn't a lot of um, information given out on a daily basis to the people to really understand before the trial actually happened what these charges were, what it actually meant, uh, what will happen you know, if the person is not convicted of this and so forth, just to prepare you know, the the country so that they can understand what is at stake. And I think if the public would have known this high level of of, of charges and also um, the burden of proof that the prosecution had to prove and what the defense was going to do, because trial is just a well-rehearsed day. We all know what's going to happen at trial. It's just the execution of it, right? right. So it's all there in the pretrial war. We know what witnesses are being called. We know what jurors on, on, on the jury pool after more dire uh, challenges and the like. We all know it. It's just being able to execute. Now, when you compare and contrast this against the case in Minnesota, and the prosecution were well prepared. They prepared their witnesses extremely well. Even with the history of drugs and so forth, of the deceased, they prepared uh, the witnesses phenomenally in order to provide them to look human as opposed to look like a heathen. Right. So you talked about the Chauvin trial, right? We, in, absolutely. Regarding the murder of George Floyd, Minnesota. Absolutely. State, right? You know, and what the process, what the defense did, they did the exact same thing that the prosecution did in Minnesota. Uh, whereas the prosecution in this case simply did not. Uh, so we 
take a look and compare and contrast. Like you said, Will, it's very important that we understand the facts, the, the charges, the burden of proof, and what actually transpired and look at the jury and kind of see where, of course, things are going to come out afterwards, but uh, understand what the jurors were actually hearing, seeing, looking at during the entire trial. Right. And, and, yeah. And, and what they were charged to actually uh, deliver a verdict on. And that brings me to the judge, you know, the judge <laughs> and his shenanigans. I mean, it, it's like in a case like this, I think that a lot of times um, in the legal system, I think in the, in the journalist, journalism industry, we're so much in the bubble and so much in the day-to-day of what we do that we could be a little oblivious to how what we do affects the broader society. So where am I going with this? The judge needs to understand that he's operating in a context of people in society seeing all of these court shows and cop shows and so forth and thinking that the way that it's often portrayed in the cop shows and the court shows is how it actually goes down in a courtroom when you are faced with that, when you're in a real courtroom. We're we're operating in the context of the O.J. Simpson trial and some of these other trials that we have seen that have been so sensationalized, right? And so it's so easy, you know, for a judge to add to that distraction, add to all of that sensationalism when they're adding all these different shenanigans into it. And so he starts to become the story. He starts to become, you know, is he fair? He's acting like he's on the defense team and all of this. When, as you just pointed out, what the jury is really looking at and what they're really charged to make a judgment on is so much a final line and it it can very times be very complicated, you know, and complex that you're sitting in that jury room. And again, you, you've got, you've been a lot of times sequestered or you're not able to read what's going on in the media. And you really have to focus on what is the evidence that's being presented. And it just, when you add these kind of shenanigans and distractions, to me, it makes it more difficult once a decision is rendered for the people in society now afterwards to understand and to process what really went down. And so the judge, in many ways, there's been critiques on both sides saying that, you know, this judge on a day-to-day basis doing his work for several years is actually a good judge. But we see him in these shenanigans, it's like, come on. And it just feeds the impression that many of us already have of this legal, what I call legal injustice system. It just feeds that. It just feeds that notion. And then when you don't understand all of the other fine-tuned elements of the case, it just makes it very easy for people to just go into their respective corners where they already have an opinion on it anyway, and just operate in life with more distrust, with more dissatisfaction of being able to get justice if they have to go before the justice system. And I think that the judges and the attorneys really, when the cameras are on, to me, instead of being more uh, uh, 
emboldened by the cameras and, and becoming actors, they should really become even more sober, even more um, uh, professional, understanding that, you know, the, the, the public, their view of what's going on in this courtroom may not be the same, may not be playing out the same in the public as it is playing out in that courtroom. And the unfortunate thing is I don't see that changing anytime because lawyers so much, just like politicians, because so many politicians come out of, you know, law schools and are lawyers themselves. All they think about in terms of is, is winning and losing, winning or losing. That's it. Winning any cost, winning or losing, you know, be, be damned. Oh, what well, happens I'm after? Gonna, well, I'm, I'm not going to say that, but that is a large part of it. That's the huge. That's a huge part of it, man. Win at any cost. Say anything and win at any cost, and be damned what the what the ramifications are afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to your point, like I said, I'm not going to disagree. Uh, but that's you know, that's not. But you, lawyer, you can defend your you can defend your profession. <laughs> you know, but if you're not winning, <laughs> in, the, in the words of one of those movies, uh, if you ain't first, you last. <laughs> So, so, so with that, I, I will. I, I want to uh, come back to a point that you made, and then uh, we're going to take a look at when we talk about trust in the justice system. Mm -hmm. Look at the Arbor and Arbor trial and what's really on trial there. Right. In this case, in the Calvin House case, again, what is happening? I think that a lot of people are going to utilize this to galvanize their side on, on all sides. Right. Um, I think what's what what what's happening on the was called the right. Uh, we're seeing one of the U.S. Congresspersons offering him an internship on Capitol Hill. Yeah, please. Uh, we see a documentary that's a, that's coming out uh, sponsored by Fox News. Totally irresponsible. Uh, we see individuals uh, now utilizing this as gun rights uh, and sparking more debates on gun rights and race. Uh, we're seeing more stay. This is going to spark more discussion about staying your ground. Uh, this is going to spark spark more debate around um, racial uh, issues as it relates to who can trust the justice system, right. who can trust the police, and, and and the like. So, when I say utilizing this to galvanize, and I think what's going to end up happening, unfortunately, this is going to be utilized to divide. But I think that we could utilize this to not just have a debate. But more specifically, we utilize this to have a substantive discussion about solutions. And, and well, I think that's where we are. I think if we have to have that, because if we don't have that, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to get more and more of these uh, events that take place on a larger scale, on a much larger scale. Um, and it's going to take place, unfortunately, uh, at an inopportune time where our country really needs to be together. I think it's going to end up causing our country to become more galvanized and more polarized around their efforts than coming together. So, but I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, but we'll see what happens after this documentary comes out uh, about this particular case. Uh, but I hope, like, like you said, I hope they do the right thing. But I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I think another thing that needs to happen is some real clear legislation regarding what is self-defense. Yeah. You and you also mentioned stand your ground. I mean, the stand your ground laws are still unclear. 
you know, and you've got more and more stand your ground laws across the state since we first heard of stand your ground a couple of years ago. And you, you think about um, the Trayvon Martin case and this, again, this bordering on vigilanteism and also what does it mean to engage in self-defense? It's not clear. Case, that, was, that was another case that I, if you go back and listen to the 911 tape, mm-hmm. they told him to stay in the car, call the police. And he made the statement. He said, these people always get away. Right. And he engaged that, that young man in where he lived with this his is father. The Florida, this is the Florida case. Yeah, the Florida case where he lived with his father, you know, half the time with his mom, half the time with Florida because of the you know divorce situation. And the white I mean, gentleman was like, convicted on this. He was convicted in that. Thank, absolutely. Thank, thank God. Right. You know, so, again, it's one of those things uh, uh, where, wait, but did you say that he was convicted? I believe, yeah. What the, uh, I believe that gentleman was, uh, he was convicted. No, he actually got off. I mean, that, that, was, that was one of the main issues in that particular case. Uh, no, well, well, let's, yeah, if you can check that out, let's, let's be clear on that. Cause again, I think being clear and having the right information is, is key. And right now, self-defense, what is legal self-defense? That's not clear. That's not clear. And it seems like, you know, that, that, that used to be something that we kind of understood. Hey, if I'm, if I'm being attacked, I have a right to defend myself if the, attack is over, then I need to withdraw. I don't need to, I don't need to continue. And that also, if I'm being attacked, then what is justifiable self-defense is that I respond with equal force. I mean, if somebody's attacking you in a fist fight, you don't respond by blowing them up with a hand grenade and call that self-defense. So these things are just not, um, you know, they're just not a, it's just not clear. I was talking about the, um, I think you were talking about Trayvon Martin. Sorry, I was talking about the other case, I think that was up in Jacksonville, where there okay, was so, a... Uh, right, so so exactly right. So we'll be clear on that. George Zimmerman was convicted, I mean, was acquitted. Yeah, he was let go. The other, the other case, right. I believe that was up in Jacksonville, where the young man was uh, shot by a white man because the, the, he talked about, you know, his music is too loud and so forth. And he tried to claim stand your ground. I think he was convicted. Yeah. But um, that's what I think that's important is instead of the politicians being irresponsible and talking about offering internships and then and turning around and, and raising money on the, on the backs of this is still a 17, just turned 18 year old young man. And you're going to raise money on his back. And, and like you said, embolden other people in the na- white nationalist movement and so forth, who he may not exactly be aligned with. I think that the, I think that that's important, that as we start getting distracted by these other things about whether or not he's uh, a, a, a budding member of the Proud Boys and all of this, I think we end up move, losing our sight on what is really the threat here, which is, A, why is it that black and brown people, the system can't work in the way for us as it has for this young man who is white? Because clearly I don't think there's anyone that believes that a, a, a black, a young black man, 17 years old, same situation, that he would not have been put under the, the prison. And then the other thing is, what does this now mean 
for people's a, a right to peacefully protest. Doesn't mean if people are out peacefully protesting that if you disagree with them, that you can come there armed. And if you feel like you are being attacked or someone does respond to your pro uh, provocation, that they can lose their life and you get to walk free. To me, That's those are the two things that are very uh, crucial here that are really at, at risk going long term. And some of these other stuff that has happened around the case are distractions. And I think we really need to be clear on what happened in this case and what really needs to be done around what does it mean to, to exercise self-defense. Right. And Will, to your point, Michael Dunn. Michael Dunn was the uh, person convicted of shooting the young man at the gas station over loud music. Right. And he actually lost his bid to overturn that um, that, that particular conviction. So Michael Dunn was convicted. Uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted. Right. Uh, so, but but with that, well, one point I want to bring out with the Amway Aubrey case, and I know we're in our last few minutes here, uh, is that in this case, when we take a look at walking and jogging and observing in, while black hmm. in different neighborhoods, you know, this is really a trial where the black community is looking at the justice system to determine if they can trust. Um, now, in contrast to the Kyle Rittenhouse case, we were looking at a, a case that was in the Midwest, the right. most northern Midwest, Wisconsin. Uh, it's a very uh, white state. Uh, and of course, the individuals engaged in the, both the defendants and the victims were also white. Right. And majority, uh, almost all white jur jury pool. And of course, there's a different history and right. the history is not that long of racial issues in that particular state. Now, compare and contrast that with the state of Georgia. Compare and contrast that with the history of the Confederacy. Compare and contrast that with the recent and past history of Brunswick, uh, military area, uh, but also of that area of Georgia. It's a different, totally different. Very uh, different world. Same Absolutely. country. Still same, same country. country. You're exactly right, Will. You know, so when you have Black residents that have lived there, they live through um, the history of that particular part of Georgia itself mm -hmm. and that particular part of Georgia. So now this case really has a lot riding on it for African-American citizens because now the question, question becomes, can they, is the system going to work for them? With all of the evidence, and I think that the prosecution is doing a much better job in this case than we, the case we just uh, looked at. And of course, a lot of the evidence that's there is uh, evidence that was gathered by video. Uh, we can see it. Also, audio, uh, eyewitness testimony, and the like. So there's a lot that goes into this particular case where I think, and of course, the testimony that's transpired on the stand mm -hmm. by one of the accused, right. one of the defendants. So I think a lot of this, of what we're seeing now, I believe this verdict is going to go in a different direction. I believe that it's going to go in a direction where we see where the system will hold individuals accountable when they are acting recklessly right. with an intent that is to hurt, harm, or put others in danger. Um, I also thought that in this particular case, the way that it's being covered is being covered in a way that we're getting a lot of information before 
and also during the trial where it helps to taper um, expectations and, and feelings, high emotions and feelings where it could bubble up to the top and really cause uh, the opposite uh, uh, outcome that we want in our nation. And that outcome is not to be a nation where we are divided or a nation instead where we come together. You know, I saw an interview with um, um, Mr. Aubrey's uh, mother, and she expressed uh, a lot of optimism and hope that the um, the trial, that there would be justice. I mean, you tell me from your gut, you know, as an attorney, you know, as an African-American man, um, seeing these situations, I mean, what gives you the sense that this, that this is going to be a more just um, outcome? than we've seen as you as you compare it to the Rittenhouse trial, because I, I'm not the thing about the Rittenhouse trial, I, I find to be un, you know, unjust is I'm not sure that 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 he shouldn't have gotten uh, convicted on something. It, it's 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 something that is not uh, correct about um, going across state lines like that and in somebody's life lives being taken. And, you know, sure. I just but again, when you get to the to the specifics of the law, um, if you can't convict somebody, even though it just not doesn't feel right, then you have to stand tall on the law. So in this case, going down in Georgia, when you look at the law and you look at what feels right, because it does not feel right that these men tracked him down, hunted him down, essentially, yeah. and killed him. But what gives you hope when it comes to the law and how this may play out in the courtroom that there's going to be justice? Sure. So what gives me hope is that they're, the charges, they had, they actually went back and mm. these individuals were actually charged, arrested, charged, and indicted. Um, and the charges themselves, I think, are ones that can be proven based upon the standard uh, of this mm. particular, uh, in this state, as it applies to this case. So I, I think there are multiple uh, steps that mm -hmm. gives me hope and optimism and how the prosecution has held it. Now, keep in mind, they weren't arrested initially, right? Right, but it's, right. It was so, and keep in mind also... The prosecutor didn't even want to prosecute it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah. also keep in mind, in Minnesota, you know, George Floyd, you know, the police department was not forthcoming and with the information and the police report was not as clear as it should have been. Right. So this is, this is something where it's not as if our systems are doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, right. but it's working because the people that, that operate around and within the system are pushing the narrative. And that's really where change really comes. Well, so those steps in seeing this case transpire across um, each um, level where it comes from the investigation to the arrest, to the charges, to the indictment, uh, to the board dire. Uh, now, keep in mind, there's only, there are a lot of challenges to the jury pool, so there's only one black person on the jury, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that becomes problematic itself because we're still looking at bias in jury selection. And even a judge mentioned that this could be problematic, but they allowed it to go on. So, but with that being the case, and that's, those steps give me optimism. And I believe that, again, it's not about these people are wrong and they should get it. And I'm not, I'm not looking at it from that aspect. I'm looking at it from an accountability aspect 
in ensuring that the process works, right? So from that from that view, from that standard, from from that analysis, I think we're going to get a get a verdict in favor of uh, the prosecution in this case, as opposed to not. But we'll be back to discuss that once the verdict comes down. So we want to thank you guys for joining us again for this segment of Levisa and Cavill. Uh, again, you can find us on social media at Levisa and Cavill or our website at www.levisecavill.com. Like us, share us, play it back, and tell us how we're doing. And for all your support, we thank you. Until next time, that's the way we see it. That's the way it is. We'll see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of La Vise d'En Claville. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For information or to connect with La Vise d'En Claville, check out our website at www.lavisplaville.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to At the La Vise d'En Claville on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. This has been the latest episode of La Vise d'En Claville.